Hey guys, before we start the show, I just want to give a quick shout out to another podcast. Hey, don't forget to check out the Pacific War Podcast week by week in association with Kings and Generals. You are listening to the Pacific War Channel's podcast. If you wish to see the video version of these podcasts, go to the Pacific War Channel on YouTube. Hello there, welcome back to the Pacific War Channel, where we cover the entire history of the Asia-Pacific War of 1937 to 1945, and all the major events that led up to it. I am here yet again with my dutiful co-host. What's up, everybody? Nice to be back. Formerly known as Mr. Economics. (laughs) (laughs) I have officially lost that title. Now I'm just the guy who's trying to learn a little more about history. Hmm. And we are doing a episode talking about a YouTube episode I put out, which was a bonus episode for my World War I series. This time it was Southeast Asia during World War I. I think uh, a little bit of a surprise to some people that I made this one, but a very vocal crowd of mostly Vietnamese had asked for something that was, you know, close to content based on Vietnam. I think they were looking more for the Franco-Vietnam War, but, uh, you know, I was already doing World War I, so this kind of worked out. So that's why we're here today. Before we jump right into it, uh, I am going to just talk a little bit about the direction of the podcast, because by the time this episode comes out, uh, another episode will have piloted, and that's kind of branching into this new territory for the podcast. So as many of you listeners, I guess, would already be aware, I'm beginning to do kind of standalone discussions on anything about the Pacific War. The first episode was a kind of hypothetical alternate history episode about what if Japan attacked the Soviet Union during World War II. Shut the fuck up! Know your fucking place, trash! What if, like, Hoku Shinran happened? And that was with uh, my friend Eric. There's a few other episodes that have already been filmed at this point with uh, other guys, with other hypothetical questions, but there'll be episodes where we'll just talk about, it could be any subject, like, what's the difference in food on the islands during the Pacific War, you know? what would have happened if a certain battle went another way, things like that. So I hope the audience likes this and that will be an ongoing thing with the podcast going forward. But the thing that me and Justin have been doing this whole time where we talk about my YouTube episodes will still always be present, rest assured. Justin still has a job. Yay. (laughs) So for those who uh, aren't used to these kind of discussion podcasts, basically we ask kind of three, there's about three phases of the podcast. First, I ask my guests, you know, what do they think of the episode? What surprised them? What did they learn? Stuff like that. Second part is kind of like what didn't make it into the episode. Cause I write 10 pages or something for most of these episodes and I have to cut it down in half usually. Uh, the third part will be me answering audience questions. I found in the YouTube episode or on Reddit and other places. And this episode happened to have quite a lot of questions. So there'll be a lot of that in this one. So, well, I'll just start it off with, uh, you know, what did you think, Justin? Well, you know what? Southeast Asia during World War I is something that's not talked about a lot. Yeah. I mean, already, you know, me not coming from a historical background. My education in this is not the best. But when it comes to that whole region, whether you're talking about Singapore, whether you're talking about the Taiwan, Philippines, uh, it doesn't really matter. You don't hear about it. So knowing what their involvement was, where their allegiances lied, what the reasons for that, it's, it's nice to talk about it a little bit to really figure out what, what was going on in that area of the world at the time. Um, as far as the episode goes, I mean, very straightforward, was pretty easy to follow. Although, 
you guys in the comments can help me out. I actually want to start a poll in the comments to which is worse, Craig's Asian pronunciations or Craig's French pronunciations. You don't frighten us, English pig dogs. Go and boil your bottoms. Yeah, I knew this now, was coming for up. Those of, no, no, for those of you who don't know, we come from the French part of Canada. And while we're both predominantly native English speakers, we've lived here our whole lives. And Craig <laughs> married to a French woman. So... I don't think there's any excuse for this. I would love if you would all make fun of him in the comments with me and help me out with that a little bit because, good God, was it painful to watch. But we did learn some stuff. So let's get into it. So let's get into it a little bit. Uh, where did we start it off in the episode? Was Vietnam, wasn't it? Yeah, I started with the Vietnamese, followed by the Cambodians, and then the Thai. Yeah. Now, the Vietnamese, we had kind of mentioned them in passing in previous episodes uh you mentioned in this episode that the first naval deaths were uh when they got into a little skirmish with the not us i always want to say uss SMS smsm then smsm then thank you um which we talked about in the german raiders episode yeah. you know that, that was mind you you're talking about less than less than 10 deaths i think but uh, officially yeah. the first casualties of world war one for them yeah yeah so that's still you know that's uh, when when the body count starts going up that's when you start really considering it as holy crap or at war yeah but other than that it seemed like a fairly seemed like a fairly well-fought battle for from all sides because they like again like you mentioned in the episode they weren't uh, they weren't conceding grounds to the enemies they weren't uh, getting pushed back they were really fighting quite well considering they were outmanned and outgunned yeah, it's kind of our, it's a little funny when you think about it because these colonial forces were brought, the ones who did face combat, because most of them, uh, they were in labor roles and such, but uh, they were thrown into some of the thick of it. They were thrown in the Macedonian front, you know, over in the Balkans and then in multiple places in France and some of the, in some of the rough battles too. And their officers who, I'm going to go ahead and say it, were old fashioned and were prone to racial attitudes, had a lot of good things to say about them. So that's an eye opener. And uh, a lot of them got uh, dispatches that showed their courage. You know, like when you get a medal, it gives you kind of like a title. You fought bravely and et cetera. Mm -hmm. So it goes to show that, yeah, they were a significant fighting force. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, their, their, their trench warfare definitely seemed to, uh, they definitely seemed to hold their own in that respect. I mean, as far as questions go, it all seems pretty straightforward as to why they were fighting, because the compensations they received seemed to be a hell of a lot better than they would have made anywhere else. Not just for themselves, but promises to their families should they perish, mm -hmm. uh, where they would receive their, um, whatever you call it, their pensions. So the pensions, that's, uh, yeah. you know, you go back into those days in Southeast Asia, the economy wasn't quite booming yet. Although you are talking about a very heavy, like a, a trade heavy region. All the ports were opening up around there territory was kind of i don't want to say free to take but a lot of those port cities were kind of passing from hand to hand back and forth in that whole period as we've covered in a million other episodes so you know there was a lot of opening for trades but those companies that those countries sorry definitely weren't big on the map yet so the this was probably all in all their best way to make money and to provide for their family so they were seemed to be more than gung-ho to do it yeah, and I, I actually don't go into it too much in the episode because uh, the episode really tries to focus on the the war 
which is kind of funny because I guess if I could have redone the episode, you should probably focus on what happened to the countries themselves. So politically, you know, a lot of these guys, they actually signed up because they thought it would improve the chances of gaining independence for their country. They're politically motivated men and uh, yep. brought it home. Like we, as we know later, a lot of people, you know, they have the image of Southeast Asia. Oh, it's immediately after World War II, all these countries fight for independence. But the birth of that is much, much earlier. And World War I is a key point for a lot of these countries. Right. Right. Not to mention, you know, it's uh, as we've seen with actually other countries, kind of like when, when China came back from World War One, a lot of the men that were in Russia, they, br they brought back ideology, a certain Marxist one. When okay. the Vietnamese or even the Thai came back from World War One, they brought back their own ideology. They had learned a lot of different things because, you know, some of them were students, some of them were just observing and a lot of them noticed that these so-called superior people that have been bullying them back home, the Europeans, were not as strong as they thought, and they weren't all powerful. As I make a big note of in the episode, especially when they, uh, I think it's the Vietnamese, if not the Cambodians, that took quite a note of how the Germans gave them a good thrashing and were wondering, well, why are we fearing these people back home? You know, back home, these people are like, basically slave masters you know controlling us in the fields yet when we come over here we see them plowing their own fields they're no different than us yep. they open up a lot of eyes to you know uh, the reality of the world we'll call it yeah so, so seeing the play field is a little bit more level you know and mm -hmm. i think that was a bit a big part of it too motivationally on a country level not for individual soldiers but yeah. you know talking about them uh them signing on in hopes to kind of level out some of these unequal treaties of which there were, you know, again, many, many of that we've talked about in previous episodes and oh, yeah. hoping that that would kind of help them wipe the slate of those, you know, because yeah. that was a big part of them, I guess, viewing themselves as inferior countries maybe, or other countries viewing them as inferior. It goes whereas both ways. Could, yeah. Whereas if they could kind of wipe those off the board by signing on to help with France or whatever it may be, then, uh, you know, they might secure themselves a, a bigger seat at the table, so to speak, or a seat at the table at all. And then you have the interesting case where, yes, the, the case for Vietnam and Cambodians is they're part of French Indochina, so they are uh, a colonial country. But for Thailand, Thailand was an independent, sovereign country, and they independently sent a force over. And the allies, well, the Entente, I won't call them the allies, they agreed to it and they allowed it to come over. Although... Mind you, the Thai were a little bit late to uh, the war and they didn't really get to do much, but, you know, they still marched in the parade. They had an air force, which is quite interesting. And uh, they managed to thwart colonialism, basically, by showing, you know, a strong face. And it actually worked. They uh, secured their borders because they had lost, before World War One quite a bit of territory to the French and British. Well, I think for Taiwan, that might have been part of the... Part yeah, of Thailand. the thinking was... Made. Thailand, sorry. <laughs> It's been a long day. I haven't uh, had enough coffee yet, but um, I think uh, I think that might have been part of the idea. Is uh, you know they might have been able to pick apart some territory or take some back uh, by pushing German forces back. Yeah, and uh, in the end, I mean, uh, all these countries got more information, more skills, soldiers properly trained. All these guys came back home. A lot of them became. Uh, people in politics, some actually future prime ministers, presidents of their countries, 
And some of them started the independence movements that would uh, spring forward closer to World War II time. So um, it's kind of like a double-edged sword if you, if you see it from the colonial side. Uh, the colonial masters got desperate, they asked for help, and then they started insurrection in their colonies, basically. Especially the yeah. French. Mm. <laughs> and uh i think at this point i'll just bring up i know it's going to come up later in the comments because i already have the questions offhand but a lot of people would notice and i even said in the episode that i had to basically choose three countries to talk about when i i, I labeled the episode southeast asia i was actually thinking about calling it just french indochina and taking out uh, thailand but in the end, when my, uh, my when my research was finished, I, I settled upon uh, Vietnam, Cambodia, and Thailand. Could have added others, but uh, there just wasn't enough time. And I know it was probably a lot of people are disappointed, and I can tell in the comments. So I'll just I'll speak a yeah, little bit about Yeah, there were some that. questions about the Philippines and stuff that I saw yeah. for sure. Uh, I, I mean, there's more than the ones I'll name right now. But in my research, I did look into Burma, Laos, and Philippines uh burma for well i guess i'll actually i'll start with laos laos is an interesting one because laos and cambodia kind of fall into the same exact situation whether these small countries and laos is this unfortunate thing with borders going on at the time where it's kind of too close to some border skirmishes so what is laos is actually technically part of thailand too so people that would consider themselves uh from laos fought either for the thai or for french indochina during world war one uh, a few of them not an extremely large number but there was some and they did the same thing as the cambodians basically and uh here actually i got some of my information to toss up uh for burma i'm gonna actually leave that a little bit later because burma is going to come up for the q a answering the audience questions but uh, i'll talk about the philippines the philippines was uh an interesting beast of its own for world war one so in the united states uh as i don't know if you know this justin <laughs> The United States basically made uh, the Philippines a protectorate. It's not exactly a part of, we'll call it their empire, but it's a protectorate. So they're looking after them. And at the same time, World War One is about to kick off. The United States is um, openly flirting with the idea of giving them independence. So they passed a law called the Jones Law of 1916, which initiated what we'll call the process of gaining independence over a certain period of time for the okay. Philippines. So the Filipinos were ecstatic to hear this. I mean, they had fought quite a few wars at this point against the Americans and against the Spanish and stuff. So they were pretty hyped up. And when World War I kicked off, the Filipinos were extremely invigorated to sign up and fight for the Americans and alongside the Americans. Makes United, sense. Yeah. The United States, well, it only helps your situation, as you would imagine. Mm -hmm. uh, the United States only entered World War I in 1917, a bit later. So it's kind of put everything, you know, in a stall. But once the United States uh, started the war, it basically allowed the Philippines to say, hey, can we please join in? And the United States agreed. They thought it was a good idea that the Filipinos participate uh, as a country because there had already been a lot of Filipinos in the United States who were Filipino-American at this point who would fight for them. But for the Filipinos themselves, the United States had two major concerns. They were scared about arming the Filipinos on their own soil because... As you can imagine, it's a protectorate in the United States laws interests, so they don't want to arm some guys that are going to form an insurrection against them. Kind of right. The other thing was they were a little bit scared about sending untrained Filipinos to the front in France because they thought 
they'll get massacred like everybody else, which, yes, that would happen. The alternative would be to bring the Filipinos to the Mexican border, where the United States was having a huge, untalked about little war with the Mexicans. But they thought the Filipinos would go through so much prejudice by their own people that it would be a catastrophe, which it probably would have been at that time. So they didn't go for that. What the United States eventually signed off for is to allow the Filipinos to form their first National Guard. So it worked out. The Americans could take most of their forces out of the Philippines, dedicate them to World War I, and then secure the Philippines with Filipinos mostly. They allowed a 14,000 strong force to be built and uh, they were training them. They even gave them aircraft and they had their first kind of uh, air force, I guess you could call it. It was rudimentary because the United States had the worst aircraft ever <laughs> for World War I, so it was probably a joke. But anyways, they started all this and uh, the Filipino National Guard, which I'll just call the PNG, it's easier to say, uh, was formed. And they eventually were ready for service. And the day they were officially fully mobilized was November the 11th, 1918. The exact day the war ended. <laughs> so, I was just gonna say, it sounds yeah. like they might be a little late to the party. Later than the ties. Uh, so the the PNG uh, it stuck around for a while. It gets disbanded, I think, like two years later. Uh, but it was the uh, the starting point, you know, for an army that would actually be produced uh, in time for World War II and during the Pacific War, the Filipinos would fight tenaciously against. The Japanese, alongside a crazy American general called Douglas MacArthur, who screwed everything up, but it's not the Filipinos' fault. It's Douglas MacArthur, in my opinion, and that's in mm -hmm. the future. Right. Um, but other than the Filipino force itself, uh, a lot of Filipino Americans did fight in World War One, and uh, I have the name of the first Filipino American who died. His name was Private Thomas Claudio, and um, 600 Filipinos are estimated to have joined the U.S. Navy, 4,000 in the U.S. Army. And we have an estimate here that reports about 62 Filipinos most likely died in World War I, fighting for the Americans. Okay. So I could have definitely made an episode, and I could still. Maybe I'll, I'll, I'll look into it. Although I think there's even better events to talk about in the, as far as the Philippines is concerned, rather than World War I. There's a lot more you can talk about, especially just before World War II. There's a lot of interesting stuff. Well, I mean, the, the thing with the Philippines when you compare them to Thailand or anything else is that they don't have any landmass on the continent. So even if, let's say, World War I goes south and Germany starts marching across, they're not the first ones that are going to be losing any ground. No. But was the Philippines like kind of a key naval stop or a seaway stop uh, for either u.s troops or anybody going to that area during world war one it's a key or, naval stop for the americans yeah so i mean that uh, that in itself is a lot which is probably one of the reasons why they had a protectorate on the country but but uh, the americans are mostly stopping there actually to threaten the japanese not the germans so it uh it doesn't really serve the Filipino people at this point uh, much more than a headache in case the Japanese decide to do something. So all that tension between Japan and USA and all that stuff started way, way before World War II, I guess. Uh, immediately after the Russo-Japanese War, it was Theodore Roosevelt himself that started all the plans to basically put what would, I would argue, you know, the wheels into motion to start a war. 
they they planned everything out they intensified the philippines they made it like uh kind of the base of operations and yeah really right. early on right uh well, actually I mean, that, that definitely makes sense and like i said the, that that whole area that whole region is just not talked about especially in our western history so oh, not at all i didn't know any i had no knowledge of uh, most of the research uh, i had to do for the southeast asia the only thing i kind of knew was the philippines a bit anything involving french indochina other than knowing their colonies of france i mean i knew much more about african troops in world war one on both sides of africans i fought for the central powers and the entente powers and i think there's about four million of them so in the greater scheme of things the a lot of people will, will talk more about that and there was battlefields in africa too so it's kind of uh much more talked about when you think about colonial troops and then uh you, you know what is colonial troops are we considering uh, us canadians the indians uh anzac and all that i mean we're all colonial forces and we were sent to fight the wars of the Europeans after all. Right, right. Now, I won't ask you for too much on this because it's probably a rant that'll lead us into a whole other video or a whole other series of this podcast, but uh, did some of these countries kind of pick up their activity and uh, were they more active during World War II type of times or? Oh, yes. So if you're talking about French Indochina, which gets invaded uh, immediately in World War II by the Japanese. It's completely taken over. And Thailand allies, it's, it's Thailand is the only country to be an actual formal ally to the Empire of Japan. Uh, who else are we talking about here? Well, that takes care of all the guys in the episode. As far as the ones I didn't talk about in the episode, the Philippines, of course, is a major, huge part of the Pacific War. Uh, Burma is another huge part. The, it's where the British are fighting. And okay. um, hmm. Laos is part of French Indochina at that point too. So yeah, it all kind of falls in the line. Yeah, so obviously World War II, there's a lot more action in the immediate area. I guess some of them didn't have to go all the way to France to see uh, yeah. the front lines type of thing. No, they were just invaded and really oppressed. Really, it was rough being under the Japanese yoke for anyone and any country that got taken over i mean i mean it was worse for the chinese but uh well yeah it was it was never really that a, it wasn't a good time <laughs> right right uh, i think um, i'm gonna jump in had, oh, yeah i was gonna say i think we had some questions uh, in the comments that i was reading uh not, yeah i'm gonna not try and do this uh, rather quick because there's quite a quite a few questions so one of the first ones and uh, i answered some of these actually in the comments section but i'm gonna reiterate more because i actually want to talk about on the podcast i had one question here i did not realize the foundational role world war one had of the independence movements in china and southeast asia i had always thought it was world war ii but thinking on these movements all began before world war ii was it similar was it similar with india and burma in australia we celebrate anzac day i guess in australian speaking and it signifies when we decided to stop groveling to britain and going it alone as Canadians, we uh, kind of, yeah, we have like the exact same, same situation. Yeah, no comment. Uh, India is, I guess, arguably the country that, uh, you know, the most happened <laughs> for them in their independence movement. Because World War I was, just like World War II, a colossal loss of blood for India. They are the unsung heroes of both world wars, and it's, it's really horrible what happened to them. 
So um, to talk just a briefly about uh, a little about a little bit about India. Uh, at the time of World War One, and by the end of it, India's population grew, you know, stronger from like the fighting, and they gained kind of a, a sense of nationalism as a result of everything they had done. And you know, they suffered heavily. Heavy taxes were raised upon them. This led to high inflation rates. The Spanish flu hit immediately after the war, killing a ton more people. They were hit that by was another nasty one. Yeah. They were hit by massive trade disruption like the Southeast Asian countries because of World War One, all the shipping routes. And simply the high death rate caused by World War One, as the Indians were thrown in some of the worst places on earth at that time. You know, this all led to a strong sense of nationalism and hatred for their colonial masters, Britain. To appease India, the British increasingly handed over more and more power. The, you know, i.e. self-governance, because the British, you know, they have to take their military assets out of their colonial countries to bring them to the front lines. But if you have all these people in high administrative positions, well, what do you do? You have to train locals to take these positions over. And that can be a good thing and a bad thing if you're looking at it from the British point of view, who want to hold the crown jewel that is India for their empire. So um, after the Indians saw Britain getting absolutely smashed by the Germans, you know, they started to really understand their colonial master was not invincible, much like we were talking about the Southeast Asians, and that they could be overcome. Britain no longer, you know, held its authoritarian role in the world anymore. Like World War I really hurt the British Empire. And India, it's not like they thought they're going to get independence right away after World War I, but as time gets closer to World War II and you see the Gandhi movement and everything, India makes a firm like line in the sand moment, you know, where they're like, we're going to fight this war for you, but we're getting independence. And I'll get to that later in the future with Churchill and the horrible things that he does to India and stuff. But India will get its independence through much more suffering. We'll say that much. Uh, the guy asked about Burma. Which I'm not too, uh, Burma's one of my weaker points, but I'll try and put in my two cents. Burma's participation during World War I was limited, much like uh, French Indochina. They had mainly provisional troops, although they did send engineering units to places like Palestine and Mesopotamia, where they fought bitterly against the Ottomans. That was some rough stuff. Uh, thousands of the Burmese volunteered to serve as, you know, anything from drivers, sapers, laborers, uh, or they joined the 70th, the 70th, well, that word hurt me there, 85th Burma Rifles, which was raised in 1917 and 1918, which, uh, as I said, they fought the Ottomans in Palestine and places like Mesopotamia. Uh, the Burmese, as we know them, is actually a bunch of different ethnic groups. And um, oddly enough, the British chose to take a lot of the minority groups out of Burma to use as soldiers instead of going for the majority. Um, don't know why they chose to do this. Maybe it was something about keeping the population in line. Regardless, uh, a lot of these groups were Chins, Kachins, Burmans, and Karens. And uh, they fought um, mostly in places like Palestine, Mesopotamia. That's mostly what they did. And uh, also, uh, Burma itself housed a lot of POWs, uh, so Turks and some Germans uh, in places like Rangoon. And um, what else is to be said? I remember in my research finding out uh, a really tragic report of an ethnic group called the Kachin, if I'm pronouncing that properly. I'm sorry if I'm not. And uh, they come from kind of a, a unique area in Burma that has a unique uh, climate. 
and they were stationed in Palestine, which you can imagine is a desert. And apparently the change of climate was so brutal for them that a large number of them committed suicide as a result. Really a sad story. Yike. Yeah, and uh, Burma went through the, you know, the same things as all the other countries, a disruption of their economy because of the war. And uh, there was a really a, a real problem with their import exports. So Burma actually sits upon quite a lot of different resources like um, zinc, lead, some oil, wolfram and um, rice. Uh, it, like most Southeast, Southeast Asian countries, they, uh, they export rice to pay for a lot of things. But a uh, two-edged sword happened uh, because of the disruptions with the trade initially, they decreased in exporting rice. Then the Germans put unrestricted submarine warfare, which almost completely stopped them from exporting rice. And this led to an enormous like tumble in the prices. Unemployment went up, poverty went up, caused decades of economic uh, decline. And they had been on the upswing. Burma was like a, a lot of money was pu pushed into the country. Britain was actually trying to establish something there. It really hurt yeah. them. And uh, the people suffered tremendously. So as you can imagine, these people are suffering and they're looking for blame. And of course, they're going to blame, you know, uh, well, the British for getting them into this mess. And it is the British who did. And uh, yeah, Burmese independence movements would flourish. And in World War II, there was the, uh, the independent free Burmese army that fought against uh, the British for the Japanese. And uh, a lot of that started here with World War I. Wow. Same as India, actually. India had its independence movement, had the Free India Army. Same, same deal. They fought for the Japanese. And uh, it wasn't an insignificant amount of people, but, you know, yeah. It did some damage, and it uh, should have opened the eyes of the colonists. <laughs> Things were wrong. Uh, another question. Some pretty good points you made, and you crucially pointed out how the First and later Second World War broke the perception of European and European origin people among many populations. Weird way of saying it. Shattering the myth that they were destined to rule over others. This is something quite a few popular retelling of both world wars miss. They turned out, they turned what were once powerful nations into neutered versions of themselves and showed that Europeans in general were in no way special compared to the rest of the world. I would be interested to hear more about post Tokugawa Japan. In particular, I would enjoy a very detailed take on various aspects of Meiji era, as well as the history of industrialization in efforts of Japan in general. Uh, so I actually answered this guy. I just realized reading this comment, uh, I, I answered him in the comment section. I, you know, I told him, as Justin knows, I made an episode of the Meiji Restoration on uh, the Boshian War and the Satsuma Rebellion. So it kind of answers a lot of his questions. But um, if he's looking well, for specialty more, is Japanese history. So yeah, if he's looking for more information on the industrialization aspect of Japan, uh, some future content will come out soon where I'll talk about Taisho Japan. So that's the period. Um, right after, well, it's, it's kind of at the end half of World War I for a few years where there's a new emperor for a very short amount of time. And uh, Japan goes through an economic crisis called like the Taisho economic crisis. And uh, it's a short period of time, but uh, it's significant. It's kind of like a real interchange between two completely different eras of Japan. So we had the Meiji era, then there's the short Taisho, and then we have the Showa era. The Showa era is what we see in World War II. And I think when I talk about the Taisho period, I'll make a lot of remarks about how it's different from Meiji and the industrialization. So you'll probably get a lot of your answers in that episode whenever I make it, because I'm slow at working on my own content now that I'm working for Kings and Generals on the side. 
All right, I'm going to go through this question real quick because I think we're running out of time. I was looking forward to seeing Burma mentioned, but I guess there was not much time. Yeah. Far as I know, the Burma rifles and sabers were sent to Mesopotamia and Palestine during World War One. So I, I kind of answered this question before. Uh, a few companies of Burmese rifles did end up fighting in the Middle East, and uh, they did their fair share against the Ottoman Empire, and it was pretty bloody stuff. Not fun. Not fun at all. And uh, I mean, yeah, if, uh, you know, if I could go back, I, I would have had to change it, you know, maybe take away the section on Cambodia for Burmese, but I chose what I chose. I had to, and uh, maybe I'll make future content on it. If not, Burma will be covered when I do everything on World War II, of course. All right, uh, I think this is my last question. Wow, why the heck did Europeans bring war to Southeast Asia? That is why colonialism is awfully ridiculous. Yeah, I, uh, I think as Canadians, we can agree because, I mean, people like, I don't know if people in Southeast Asia think about it, but uh, a lot of us in the Commonwealth, despite whatever skin color we might have, were thrown into this war because of our British overlords. Canada didn't have a real much of a choice. Anzac did not have a choice. India certainly didn't have a choice. And uh, yeah, we all suffered tremendous tremendously for it. And uh, I guess just to kind of explain, maybe if he's wondering why uh, someone like Britain or France was horrible enough to bring uh, all these people from all around the world to join in one of the worst things that ever happened to our world. Uh, the Entente powers were fighting a war of attrition against the Central Powers, and they knew they would win a long war. The Central Powers didn't have enough people. The longer the war went, the more people would come from the colonies and eventually overwhelm the Central Powers. By the numbers, uh, by the end of the war, it's something like 20, 22 million fight for the Central Powers versus a 40 to 42 million for the Entente. And a ton of those are, are colonial powers. Uh, here, I actually pulled up some numbers just to look at it. If we look at it from, uh, let's look at Britain. Oh, these are only numbers from 1914. I know that Britain in the end sent almost 8 to 9 million people. But uh, only looking at what they sent in 1914. Yeah, it's, uh, it's intense. So people recruited from England alone added up to about 4 million Scotland almost 600,000 Wales about 300,000 Ireland 130,000 Canada about 400,000 Australia Tasmania 330,000 New Zealand 100,000 South Africa 75,000 let's look for something this is all for the uh, British Indian Army 1.5 million there you go yeah Jesus yeah for france let's look initially at the beginning there was ninety thousand indigenous troops from french into china then between 1914 to 1918 they, it's like almost five hundred thousand colonial troops so that's about 150,000 west africans forty-five thousand madagascans fifty thousand indochinese 150,000 algerians it's a lot of africans almost 50,000 Tunisians, Moroccans. We're talking, it's a lot of Africans that end up having to fight for France. It's, uh, it's, it's a crazy amount. Yeah, but I mean, when you think about it too, okay, people would ask, why would Europe drag all these colonies and everybody else into, into this war? But what was their alternative? 
Their alternative was to sit home. But if the Central Powers win and then start storming all over Europe and into East Asia or well, Southeast Asia or yeah, Africa, you know, the Central Powers weren't necessarily known for their uh, levels of racial tolerance either. Mm. You know, so be to... a colony or be a captive. I mean, eh... not to go too far into the alternate history route, but Central Powers, let's say they win. These this time period, let's say it was like an early war. You throw a few colonies to the other side, you know, it's like chips on a chessboard. So yeah, maybe uh, maybe French Indochina goes to Germany. What would it change in the greater scheme of things? Germany was trading with French Indochina. Everyone was different ships, a few different flags and a few houses. Maybe the administration's a bit different. Germany was never really that good at colonizing. They not like the French or the British. Maybe it would have been better for French Indochina if the Germans took it. You think? Mm. The French were uh, notoriously, and I, I think anybody who's watching these Vietnamese, the French were not very nice in Vietnam, and uh, they'll pay heavily for it in the Vietnamese War. But uh, the Germans, um, they were late to the whole game when it came to colonizing. Like for Africa, for, for example, the Germans are, they didn't do okay it's weird to say they didn't do as mean things to the populations as the rest like the french or the british yeah maybe it would have been better for them mm. regardless we're, we're getting into theoreticals at this yeah. point but world war ii the france gets taken over by germany and then these colonies are kind of just left in a muck they don't know what to do and they get invaded by the japanese and they're just looking for anything you know they want to live their normal lives and they're getting disrupted by all these foreigners and it just sucks exactly go down that road is it better to be to help the allied powers or is it better to be attacked by japan in that era you know we've talked many many times about some of the stuff japan did and that wasn't very nice either no japan yet again i think i even said in the episode if you need to look at who was one of the greatest victors of World War One, it's the United States and Japan. Japan, because they put very limited effort into the whole thing, but they got a hell of a lot out of it. Real easy poker hand. The United States basically just sucked up all the money, as they would in World War II again. Yep. And the British didn't get a mortal wound, but a pretty big wound in World War One, and then World War II would kill them. Their, their empire would crumble, and basically they would lose a lot. Mm. And France uh, completely fell apart in World War II. Immediately. Yeah, but then again, they did have the two of the more or less the biggest hats in the ring. You know what I mean? Yeah. They, they had the biggest commitments, which means they stood to lose the most. Yeah. Immediately after World War II, France finds itself at war in, in Southeast Asia. They make the situation so much worse. And when the situation is completely unbearable, they literally toss the flaming bag of shit to the United States. And then the United States starts the Vietnam War as we know it. There you go. Hot potato. Bye. Yeah. So, yeah, the French were, uh, I mean, not to knock on them too much, but they have a tendency to do this uh, in other places in Africa. It gets us involved in all sorts of stuff, too. Rwanda was another issue, not necessarily just the French, but they had a part in that. Mm-hmm. and uh, i guess that pretty much ends it for this podcast um 
I hope everyone is somewhat happy. Uh, I didn't get to touch all sorts of different countries in Southeast Asia, but uh, I can only do so much in a 19 minute episode. And I was really stretching it. I was supposed to get it down to 15 and I kept a lot in. So it was longer than yeah. it had to be. Well, as always too, if anybody has any extra questions, comments, something you'd like to learn more about, hit us up. You know, we always like discussing things, researching things, uh, Yeah, you know. And- yeah, like if it's big enough we can even do a separate episode on it kind of like this was so and uh like justin said if you want i can make a community poll and ask uh what was worse my vietnamese my thai or my french oh we'll, we'll, we'll put them all together we can put the asian pronunciation and the french pronunciation and i'm pretty sure french still loses and if I'm you want you want a bonus round i just finished uh recording for the pacific war podcast for kings and generals where i had a very very heavy dutch episode where i had to pronounce a lot of places in dutch and i bet that one's going to be even better okay we'll talk about that after the episode because i need that recording for personal reasons mostly my enjoyment yeah it's going to be special i chose to uh to have a full quote two senses long that are that's in dutch so that, that'll be memorable i don't know oh, why i did it to myself dear, either dear. it's like christmas come early i can't wait to see this and there's a lot of dutch who watch kings and generals so they're, they're gonna be they're gonna go after me google translate for the win well can't wait to see it but i uh, hope you guys enjoyed this discussion and uh we'll catch you next time over and out